Welcome to the Look Far podcast, Voices from the Wild. Join Look Far Conservation as we talk to conservation leaders from around the world about their work, their life, the challenges they face, and the successes they've had. And they're going down the Potomac River or the Anacostia River, and they see a blue heron, or they see an eagle, or they see trash in the river, and they want to paddle over there and pull it out because they see a plastic bag or a plastic bottle. Those are the memories and the, the images that stay with me forever. Okay, episode three of the Look Far podcast. Alex, are you excited? Yeah, I'm super excited. I think this is going to be a super interesting one. Grace Lee of the National Park Trust. Full disclosure, I'm on the board of the National Park Trust, which I think I mentioned in the episode. Is that right, Alex? Yes, you did. All right. And what do you think? You, Alex, for those who don't know, is Look Far's first and fearless intern and doubles as our podcast producer. Uh, you've had a long listen to this and have edited it up to make it sound nice. Uh, what do you think? Well, I definitely learned a lot about national parks that I didn't necessarily know before and understanding how the park trust works with the national parks, but also with students and schools. It just has such a wide range. And I think it's really interesting to learn about where it connects and how uh, she's been able to affect not just the national parks, but students as well. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Park Trust's work. I've had the chance to see it up close for four or five years now. And to me, it's just one of the, the great heroic little organizations out there that punches well above its weight, has a national impact, and has so many great stories to tell, given all the different parts of the country, all the different parks, all the different schools that it works in. It's really great, and I'm so glad Grace could join us. Yeah, I'm so excited for everyone else to hear about her. All right. Well, should we get to it? Yeah, I think so. All right, let's do it. Joining us today is Grace Lee, the executive director of the National Park Trust, an organization near and dear to my heart. Full disclosure, I sit on the board of the National Park Trust and have been one of its biggest fans for many, many years since I was first introduced to it, uh, almost probably almost a decade ago, I think at this point. Grace, really happy to have you here with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. I wanted to dive right in. Um, Grace, tell us about the National Park Trust. You know, what is it? What does it do? Uh, what's it? What's its work look like? Yeah, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we were established about almost 40 years ago. And um, we focus on preserving and protecting our national parks. We do that in two very different ways. Uh, first, we acquire land to uh, complete the national parks. A lot of people don't know that there's a lot of holes in our national parks. There are privately owned lands, millions of acres of privately owned lands inside our national parks. And those lands are really important to the integrity of many of our national parks. Um, there's also adjacent lands, adjacent to the boundary that are really important to the national park. Um, and that's one of our strategies. We've been doing that for almost 40 years, as I said. But more recently, about 10 years ago, we realized that another really important way to protect our national parks is to build that pipeline of future park stewards. And that's where our youth programs come in. It's fantastic. And the Park Trust is based just outside of Washington, D.C., but very much right. a national organization and um, works with, I mean, how many schools now does the Park Trust work with? 
Well, through all of our youth programs, and we call them our Buddy Bison programs after our little lovable woolly mascot, Buddy Bison, um, there are about, about 300 schools that we support, Title I schools across the country, and they're all near and dear to us, and we love the fact that we can make their park wishes come true. Yeah, and, and that matches the spread of you know national parks and other outdoor areas. I mean, I think for some people, they might think of national parks as Yellowstone, Yosemite, Glacier, but in fact, they're pretty widespread. You can find one not too far from you, probably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we are in Washington, D.C., so there's many, many national park sites near us. Uh, but some students live in areas in where maybe the closest park or public land could be a state park or a wildlife refuge or a community or county park. So when we connect kids to parks and we use them as outdoor classrooms for science and history, and we teach them about the importance of preserving and protecting them, we connect them to the park nearest them because we want them to discover, explore them, and then keep going back to them over and over again, and then finding more parks in their community or across town. Yeah. And, you know, I want to dig a lot deeper into this, but I thought first, we've all for almost a year now been grappling with this, you know, coronavirus mm -hmm. pandemic. For a lot of people, it hasn't been possible to get to national parks. And of course, for many, many, many more, you know, schools have been closed or mostly closed. Um, remote learning is, you know, everywhere. How has the Park Trust, given it's worked so much with schools, tried to bring parks and things into classrooms and then tried to connect kids to parks. How has that been challenged by the pandemic? And what kinds of things has the Park Trust done to you know, overcome these challenges? Yeah, well, we, we have really leaned in and listened to our teachers. So when COVID hit in March and everything, as we all know, shut down suddenly across the country, we had hundreds of trips planned for our students last spring that obviously all had to be canceled or postponed. And so we reached out to all of our teachers. We told them, don't worry, we'll still have the funding for you when the day comes that we can all be out in parks together with your students. But then we paused and we said, listen, we know you're dealing with a lot of challenges. What can we do for you? And um, a lot of our teachers said to us, our kids are on their computers so many hours a day, many more hours than we want them to be. Is there any way that we can bring nature to them, to give them a break from screens, to still keep them connected to the important lessons of our national parks and cultural and historic sites, but, uh, but also give them a break from their screens. And so we listened to their needs. We huddled with our team, our education team. They're terrific. And we created the Buddy Bison Creative Learning Program, which for us is our innovative hands-on distance learning program. And when I say hands-on, we combine those virtual learning experiences with hands-on activities that the kids can do independently at home when they're not on the screen. That's great. Now, what I've always found interesting is for a lot of people who work at National Park Trust, uh, especially, you know, and on the board as well, the stories that, you know, how you found out about the Park Trust, what got you involved in there, you know, in its work. It's rare that you have someone who's just born to be a national park enthusiast and you know, spends his or her whole life in parks. There's always a story. So Grace, I'm curious, how did you discover National Park Trust? What was the process that uh, landed you as its executive director? 
Um, it's an, an interesting story from my perspective because I never could have seen myself in this role when I joined the organization 15 years ago. But my brief family history is my parents are from Shanghai, China. I'm first generation in this country. Didn't have a lot of money. My parents didn't really speak the language well, uh, but they loved the outdoors and they loved parks. So we would get in our Chrysler station wagon with no air conditioning, with our camping equipment and drive across the country, different places every time of the year and camp. And I remember those experiences as if they were yesterday. And of course I made sure that our own children had similar experiences. Okay, they didn't drive in a Chrysler station wagon with no air conditioning, but we flew to parks and had amazing park memories uh, that we created with them. And, um, and so when I heard about the opportunity to step into this organization, um, it was going through a transition. The founder was ready to go into retirement and they were looking for somebody else to take the organization to a new direction, sort of build on the goodness of what was done in the past, but expand and grow as all good nonprofits do. I was brought into this organization because I had a lot of experience working on nonprofit boards and raising uh, resources, which is critical for nonprofits. But I, they also knew the person who brought me to the organization knew that how much I love parks and how much they meant to me personally as a child and as a young mom. And so 15 years ago, I had an opportunity to work for the organization and you know, the rest is history. I stepped into the role of the executive director shortly after I joined the board when the founder stepped down and he retired. And it's just been a pure joy. I think what I love the most is that an organization that was focused purely on land acquisition was able to add to the fold to their portfolio uh, 10 years ago, the whole initiative about connecting kids to parks. Because like many people, probably you're the same way, Scott, I got connected to parks as a child. And so I understand how important it is to save parks because I've seen parks, I've been in parks. And that's what we wanna make sure is that the children that we work with in middle school and elementary school, they'll be in the 30s by the time the minority becomes the majority. And so we wanna make sure that um, diverse communities, all communities have a connection to parks um, as children so that they'll know how important it is to not only enjoy them, but to preserve and protect them. Yeah, no, our, our parks have been around a long time, but it really does seem like, and this is true, I think, across the spectrum with conservation, that whatever your past successes and accomplishments, uh, it's what's happening now and it's what happens next that will determine, you know, ultimately your, your legacy. And, um, you know, the fight's never been more important. I think also, you know, to bring the pandemic back, I mean, I've often found like, man, what I wouldn't give for the chance to visit a national park yeah. It was always a luxury, always a privilege, but to go walking in, uh, you know, wherever, you name it. I mean, Glacier, Olympic, Rocky Mountain, you know, I mean, it just seemed like such an incredible experience right now. Uh, not that my living room and wall-to-wall -wall Zoom calls all day uh, is all that rough, but boy, do I miss the parks. Yeah, I, I think there's been a heightened awareness amongst many, many people. Those of us who love parks are appreciating them even more. And I think people who didn't have a connection with the outdoors, they are realizing that being out in parks is a great way to stay connected with their faith family's social bubble. But they're also realizing that fresh air, the sunshine, no matter whether it's hot or cold outside, is really good for our mental health as well as our physical health. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's been a real heightened awareness from people all across the board about wanting to get outside whenever they can.
Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to dig in a little bit to the three kind of main areas of the Park Trust, uh, the lands program, the work with schools and with kids through Buddy Bison and through Kids to Parks Day. And then, of course, you know, we just touched on the awards program, um, mm -hmm. the Bruce F. Vento Public Service Award, typically given each year to a member of Congress who's been a real champion of national parks and public lands. Um, and then the American Park Experience Award that's recognized other forms of leadership and, and contribution to our parks. Starting with the lands program, I wonder, Grace, if you could, you could tell us a story. Because I mean, obviously, you know, going into the minute details of a real estate uh, operation probably mm -hmm. doesn't make for great podcast fodder. But I know that as is true with anything, I think, involving the national parks, there are some of the best stories around. You know, I was yeah. a, um, a volunteer at Badlands National Park when I was in college uh, for two summers. Um, so not technically a park ranger, but basically acted as one. I, had a, I didn't have a hat, but I did have the walkie-talkie. And you know, people sure do respect walkie-talkies back in those days. Um, and you know, your whole day is just one ridiculous, fun, inspiring story after another. So starting with the lands program, I wonder if you could tell us a story about one of the acquisitions and uh, how that all played out and, you know, what really struck you as interesting and, and you know, it gives an, ex uh, an idea of the kinds of things that the, um, you know, the Park Trust deals with when it tries to quite literally expand the size of national parks, you know, as part of its work. Yeah. So there are so many stories. So when you ask this question, I'm thinking, which story should I focus on? Because there's so many great stories. Each park has their own story and each land project that we do has its own unique story. And what makes our role as an organization unique in completing this, this land, the acquisition of a particular land parcel. You know, one that comes to my mind is at, at in New Mexico at Valles Caldera. Um, it is a really cool park. It's a super volcano. The volcano dates back to 1.2 million years. That's a long time ago. And there was the last inholding, and an inholding is the last privately owned parcel in a park is what an inholding is. So the last 40 acres that were privately owned inside the boundaries of the park were still available to be purchased. And the park had had their eye on this parcel for over a decade. And this particular parcel was important, not just because it was the last inholding, hashtag the last one. Um, mm -hmm. It was important because that particular inholding was important, not only because it was the last 40 acres inside the park that was privately owned. It was important because that particular piece of land had important geothermal features on it that make a super volcano a super volcano. It had hot springs and fumaroles and mud pots. In fact, um, back in the day, I think in the 1900s, it was actually a hot springs resort. And there's still signs there that say stomach and kidney trouble spring and lemonade spring. And that's so cool because that's still there. Some of the old buildings from when it was a, a, a hot springs resort are still there. But you can imagine because of the, the geological wonders that were on that parcel, why it was so critically important for the park to have that parcel. And the owner was finally ready to sell it, but he wanted um, more than the appraised value. 
and the park service can only pay if they have the money in their coffers to pay for land they can only pay for the appraised value of the land and the landowner wanted about fifty sixty thousand dollars more than that and so the park service came to us they went to several others who couldn't come up with the funding but they came to us when they had that last delta and asked for our help and that's where our wonderful donors come into place you know, we reached out to donors and we raised more money than we needed to close that deal. And so the park really thanks us for uh, being there um, when there was an urgent need. And the owner had basically said, I want to sell this land by such and such time. And so you need to come up with the money or else I might sell it to somebody else. And the park obviously needed that land and that parcel was so critically important. So that was a real victory for us. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And you're right. I mean, I know it was tough uh, to choose from. There's so many other examples like that and more, you know, in the in the Park Trust history and and obviously in the Park Trust's future as well. I mean, if anything, the land work, you know, only grows more important as more and more time passes, greater and greater pressures, you know, are exerted uh, economically and otherwise on um, on our public lands. Um, Let's, uh, I want to end with the, uh, the last story on the, um, not the podcast, but end this little sort of story time with um, the schools. So let's skip ahead and talk about the Bruce Vento Award. I think this was how I first encountered the mm -hmm. Park Trust when I was still living in Washington, D.C. and got invited to attend the award ceremony, you know, and I'll, I'll spoil a little bit of it, which is where, you know, the award's given to a member of Congress, a professional politician a very good speaker. Uh, also there is the um, National Park Trust uh, board chair, Bill Brownell, a you know extremely accomplished and talented appellate litigator among other things, used to talking on his feet, you know, in front of a lot of people and doing a great job. Mm -hmm. Grace, of course, you know, as I tell everyone who will listen, pound for pound the best executive director of a of a nonprofit that I've encountered. <laughs> and I've encountered quite a few through my my work for for Lookfar. But what always takes the cake are some of the students from a Buddy Bison school in the DC area that um, show up and also speak as part of the award ceremony, sharing some of the things they've done with their classmates. And you know whether it's the nine-year-old boy who wears the bow tie and the suit, uh, or the you know thirteen-year-old girl who um, you know shows up and you know brings samples from you know the they absolutely knock everyone off their feet and make the professional politician, the appellate lit litigator, and even you, Grace, you know, look like second or third rate public speakers. It's really, really remarkable, but, but also I think plays an important role. So if I haven't spoiled it too much, I'm curious if there's a particular story episode or aspect about honoring a political leader as a way to you know, encourage and inspire others to also lead, you know, when it comes to public lands, uh, what, what jumps out at you? I think the story that's really jumps out to me is the experiences the students have, because the students are so empowered by this whole experience that when they meet these elected officials, they realize that there are opportunities for them to really make change in our country, not just on the, not just for parks, but for the country as a whole. I think they're really empowered by that intimate connection that they can have with elected officials. We even had one elected official, I think it was from the House of Representatives, Betty McCollum from Minnesota. Minnesota. She was so impressed with the student that who spoke 
when we honored her a number of years ago that she said, when you're ready to get out of college or you want an internship, contact my office, there's a place for you. So I, I think it's just a wonderful way in which these elected officials can uh, really speak to something that they're passionate about that is uh, not divisive. It's, uh, these are bipartisan, what, what can you say that's uh, divisive about parks, right? I mean, they're about national parks and kids. It's, it's all mom and apple pie. So it's a wonderful way for us to be able to recognize elected officials about something in our country that they can all put their arms around it and embrace because they know it's good for their constituents and for the good of the country and our students and our children. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a case of being able to really hear from these elect officials on topics that we can all embrace, combined with seeing the students really empowered to um, elevate their voices and, and realize that they will have the responsibility of leading our country in the future. So to me, the story that I always take a step away from is that sort of holistic about being inspired by the elected officials, uh, no matter whether they're Republicans or Democrats, and also being inspired by our students and what they walk away with and everybody in the audience, of course. And you know the the bipartisan aspect of the awardees. I mean, last year was Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, uh, a Democrat. Mm -hmm. But in years past, there have really been some um, remarkable you know figures. Some still in office, some um, who've left office, some who who've passed on. I'm thinking of like um, John McCain, yeah, John Lewis, Congressman John from Lewis. Georgia, mm -hmm. who um, passed away last year, and you know, and a wonderful mix of of you know, of Republican and Democratic, you know, members of Congress, plus then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, right. that, you know, uh, eight years ago or something. Yeah. Um, and, and really does show how, you know, as contentious and as difficult as things can be, I mean, now especially, but it was never really all that great. There, there are things that people can rally around and, um, you know, support for our parks is one of them. Let's go to the um, the last, which is and maybe the best, which is the um, the you know the Buddy Bison program, kids to parks. The Park Justice had so many wonderful experiences with with the schools uh, and and the programs it runs. What's a good story from from all those uh, those efforts? I you know it's funny because I there are also so many stories about uh, being out in the field with children. When I first, when we first created the Buddy Bison School Program, I had the pleasure of being out in the field all the time because as an executive director for a small nonprofit, you know, you have to be able to do everything. But I really think it's great to be able to be there from the ground level building up because then when you, when the organization expands and you don't have as many times to be in the field, you really harken back to those experiences. And, and that really fuels my joy for working for this organization. But I, I always make time, I always take time every year to go out, no matter how busy I am, I step away from my computer or from the, the many meetings I have to be at and I go out into the field with the kids. And some of the best images in my mind are when we work with one of our partners, um, Wilderness Inquiry, and they bring their 10 passenger, 24 foot Voyager canoes from Minnesota. What wonderful thing about being a national organization, you have this national breadth of partners. And I think they've also been out to California when you were out there, Scott, and you got into those canoes to, with them when you used to be in California. But, um, and seeing these kids 
who are just so excited. They're terrified because they're, some of them don't swim and they're terrified of getting in the canoe because it's in the water. Um, but they learn about water safety. We get on those personal flotation devices on them, get them on real snug and teach them about water safety. So they're learning about that. And we pile them into the canoes and they're paddling and the paddles are going all different directions, but we finally get them going in one direction and they're chanting and they're going down the Potomac River or the Anacostia River and they see a blue heron or they see an eagle or they see trash in the river and they wanna paddle over there and pull it out because they see a plastic bag or a plastic bottle. Those are the memories and the, the images that stay with me forever because I can see so many things happening. We're teaching them about new outdoor recreation opportunities. We are connecting them to parks and public lands and waters right in their backyard. And we are connecting them to nature, things that they've never seen before, turtles and birds and, and deer, even squirrels, they don't see those in their urban communities a lot of times. And they are also being inspired to say, hey, that trash does not belong in that river. Let's go fetch it and pull it into the canoe and then get it into the trash can. And they're learning how when they drop something on the ground in their neighborhood, it will wind up in the sewer and this is where it will land up in the river and then into the bay and into the ocean. And so to me, being able to see how just one simple trip like that touches so many different areas of growth for them. You know, they're using the park as an outdoor classroom. They're, they're learning about their watershed. They're learning about park stewardship and they're having fun because they're doing something they've never done before. They're paddling in a canoe and, you know, and a lot of them will go back and will rent canoes with their, with their family members at these waterfront parks and go back again with their classmates, which is to us just icing on the cake. You're right. Um, thanks to you. Uh, and this was now maybe five or six, maybe seven years ago. Uh, had the chance to volunteer one day when they were out. Uh, it, it was when I was living in San Francisco. And I think we were at Lake Merced and, um, and these massive canoes. I mean, these are not the typical canoes that, you know, most of us might have tried out at summer camp one day. These are these just huge, you know, Voyager caliber uh, canoes. And um, the kids all piled in. And I think I was in front. And then one of their instructors was in the back. And we weren't the only ones with paddles, but pretty quickly, we were the only ones paddling. <laughs> and uh, the kids were having a great time, of course, but not really doing a lot of the work to keep it going. And then, of course, being the Bay Area, the weather changed, you know, on a dime and this big wind kicked up. And I never worked harder in my life trying to get that canoe back to the, the dock so we could, uh, you know, disembark these kids. But a great day for them anyway. And, uh, and for me too, all, all things considered, I don't mind having to, having to work a little bit. Well, Grace, you know, as we, uh, as we start to wind down, one of the things that I like to do on the Look Far podcast is ask each of our guests uh, the same three questions and um, not so much to compare, you know, to see who's better, but to get a sense of, you know, when it comes to conservation, how many different forms it can take and how many different ways people can engage and, and do good and, and sort of serve the missions of their organization and pursue their own kind of connection to you know, the natural world. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to run you through these three questions and see, what you, uh, see how you might do here. So question number one, 
what gives you hope? Oh, that's an easy one. The kids give me hope. I really, truly believe that they can really inspire us to make changes because if we don't want to make change for our children, then I don't know who we want to make change for. So I, I really say I, I do it for the kids because I have adult children and have friends who have grandchildren. And I want to make sure that the work that we're doing will directly benefit them. That's great. All right. Now looking ahead, this is a two-part question. 10 years, and then let's say 50 years. Tell me one thing, specific thing that you'd like to see that you think would be an indicator of success or important to have been accomplished or have been preserved and protected. What's something you'd like to see in 10 years and then in 50 years? I would like to see in 10 years, a real shift in this country of uh, making it a priority to protect our public lands and waters. I think if it's something that we all embrace and we all wanna do our part in 10 years, that 50 years from now, this country, this world will be in a much healthier place environmental-wise. But I think it really takes us having a huge change in mindset. I think people are starting to see the effects of climate change now, but some people are still skeptical about it. But I would like to see 10 years that people really say, no, I got to do my part and this is what I can do. And I want to make sure that others around me do their part as well. So that, as I said, 50 years from now, it's like getting in a car and turning the key. It's something that everybody does. You know, it's just like opening the door and taking a walk down the street. Everybody has adopted that philosophy. Um, did you do 50 years too, or was that just your 10 year? I kind of, I cheated. I kind of did You kind of blended it. Okay. Yeah, because 50, 50 years from now, I think is just that the work we do between now and 10 years, that 50 years from now, you can see the payoff, that greenhouse gases are down, that there's less plastic in our seas, that there's really been an iconic shift in what is important in our country in terms of the environment. Because I, I think that all of us will be much healthier physically. I, I, I don't know if I'll be here 50 years from now. I would be quite old, you know, <laughs> but, but 50 years from now, I'd really like to see that the, the, the world is in a much healthier place than it is today. I like that. Um, and yeah, I guess I should consider how I phrase this by saying, what do you want to see in 50 years? Yeah. Um, we're assuming, Grace, you that you'll, you'll still be executive director of the National Park Trust doing <laughs> the great so, work but... <laughs> that, you're, that you're doing. Um, and then the last question is, um, you know, there are people uh, listening, uh, eventually, presumably. What can people do to help? Uh, what can people do to help? Well, there's so much that people can do to help. In this space that we're in, in terms of protecting the environment and our parks and public lands and all the social justice implications of it, I think the federal government will always be challenged to be able to have the resources to do what needs to be done. And I think the role of nonprofits as significant as it is now is gonna be even more significant as years go by. So I think 50 years from now, maybe there'll be a lot more nonprofits doing a lot more work to take some of the heavy burden off of the federal government. So if you, if somebody asked me, what could they do now? 
find a cause that really resonates with you and an organization that does things the way you think is going to help solve the problem, learn more about what they're doing and, and get involved. I mean, it may be to volunteer, to help mentor students, to provide legal expertise for land projects. If you're a former teacher to help in supporting teachers in underserved communities, they don't have a lot of the resources that a lot of the wealthier schools have in, in terms of um, helping teachers carry the load to know so that they can get their kids to parks um, and support organizations like ours. Uh, there are many, there, we do great work, of course, that's why I'm at the National Park Trust, but there are others who do great work. And we all know that money drives mission. So if there's something you believe in, then you know help those organizations because we can all do more if there's more more resources to do them but 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 i think we need great talented people to be on our boards to be on our advisory councils and to really volunteer to help on on projects because there is endless work that we the national park want to do um, i think the rate limiting factor is having the resources and the manpower and the woman power and the kid power to get it done yeah, that's great. And, you know, and we should, we should mention um, the National Park Trust's website, parktrust.org, uh, includes a, a little donate button and a chance for, for those who are interested. And uh, I'm obviously biased, you know, being on the board, but I'm on the board because, you know, I couldn't think of a, a greater privilege than being able to donate, um, you know, my time and, and some money to, you know, a better organization that, uh, balances so many, you know, vital needs, uh, the outdoors, nature, wilderness, but also schools and, um, you know, children and communities facing all kinds of socioeconomic challenges. And then, of course, none are more challenged sometimes than our political leaders who, who need the uh, Vento uh, Award program to sort of help, you know, see, you know, this is a good path to walk. Um, Grace, it was such a privilege to, to have you here and to have this conversation I'm so glad you wanted to come on the Look Far podcast and be one of our very early, um, our very early guests as we launch this and try to create a, a new way um, for people to connect to what Look Far Conservation does. And now, you know, thanks to today, to what the Park Trust does. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. It's always fun to talk about something that you're passionate about. Look Far is a U.S. 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to defending wild and wondrous places and working with the people living in and among them. More at lookfar.org.